to show you my super nifty uh, phone. It, it's about the size of our family television when I was growing up. And some friends uh, helped, uh, helped me to get into it and, uh, and, uh, and to get it. And uh, it's been super helpful to me, able to enlarge it and actually able to, to see what's being sent to me. And, and sometimes I can see what I'm sending out. Uh, whenever I wait for Jaylen at the seminary, and she'll pick me up often at the, uh, at the seminary, if I'm sitting outside waiting, I'll take the phone out, and I don't like just being inactive uh, if I'm just sitting there, so I'll respond to emails, text messages, and, and, uh, and such by, by using the phone. But I tell you, when she pulls up, I see her smile, I get, into the, I get into the van, I put the phone away. It's very helpful while I'm waiting for her. It allows me to continue to work and to, and to, and to respond to sometimes very important messages from, from folks. But when she's there, there's nothing more important when I get in the car than my lovely wife, so I put the phone, I put the phone away. A lot of life is about waiting. And technology has made waiting a little bit easier, but sometimes technology just overwhelms people. You can, you can see people with their families in places and, and they're walking and they're just like, they're just scrolling and scrolling. They may be in downtown Disney World and there they are, their children all around them and they're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It's just insanity to me. There's a time for work. There's a time to, to not work. The passage of Scripture today is going to talk with us about the fact that there's a time to work. We are in a period of working because we're in a period of waiting. Uh, waiting for Jaylen is just a, a small picture of what it means to wait for Jesus. I'm trying not to waste any time while I'm waiting for her, but when she gets there, I'm not, I'm finished I put my phone away. In a bigger, more significant, more consequential sense, we're waiting for Jesus, and until he comes, we need to be busy at work. I want to talk with you this morning about getting ready for Jesus, getting ready for Jesus coming because he is coming back. I want to begin reading in verse 35 and read all the way through verse 48, if you would follow along and do this favor for me. If you can, if you have your Bible, mark in your Bible. If there's a way to highlight it, to highlight it on your tablet or whatever. Every time the word slave, servant, or a comparable idea is used, highlight it, underline it. And you'll see what the main thrust of the passage is by that important idea. Verse 35 says, be prepared and keep your lamp lit. You are also to be like, you are also to be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door for him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, that he will prepare himself to serve and have them recline at the table. And he will come up and serve them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. 
But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not understand he will, or do you not think he will. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will take a long time to come, and he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. When the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many blows. But the one who did not know it and committed acts deserving a beating will receive only a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. This is very helpful teaching for us because it's the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and then Luke records it, and Luke is teaching us. So often younger people will say to me, I'd just like an older person to mentor me. As I've told you before, he's mentoring us. He's guiding us, directing us, instructing us. Luke is. By telling us the teachings of Jesus that are important to us. And what Luke's wanting to communicate to us this morning is this. We need to be ready when Jesus returns. And the way you get ready for Jesus' return is by serving, by working. In fact, this passage is preceded by several <clears throat> important passages. Sometimes we read things in isolation, disconnected. Uh, we, we separate one chapter or one paragraph from another paragraph, but, but Jesus has been building toward this. If we just glance back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 for just a moment, we would know one way that we get ready for Jesus' coming is by being genuine, not hypocritical. In chapter 2, 13 through 21, be generous, not greedy. In chapter 12, 22 through 34, be trusting, not fearful. And now he says, be working, not lazy. All of these are, are activities or dispositions or mindsets that, that, sh that we should have as we wait for the second coming of Jesus. I want you to notice in verses 35 and 36, he gives two illustrations on being ready. 
two illustrations on being ready. The first one is be prepared. And the second one is keep your lamp lit. So let me think about the first one for just a moment. The NIV translates it in a way that captures the essence of it a little bit better than the New American Standard Bible does. The New American Standard says, be prepared. The NIV puts it this way, be dressed, ready for service. And that captures the essence of the command, be dressed, ready for service. Because you dress a certain way for particular activities. If you're going to a wedding, you get dressed up. If you're going to work, depending upon your job, you wear clothing that's commensurate with your occupation. If I come home from the seminary and the yard needs to be cut, I don't wear my seminary clothes out to cut the yard. I change and put, in my, put on my yard clothes, the, the clothes that Jalen will only let me wear in the yard. And uh, occasionally I'll try to get by with dark socks with my tennis shoes, short pants and t-shirt and she'll bring me back in friends and no, that's not your, you're wearing your work socks. You're not wearing those outside. You wear clothes commensurate with the activity. That's why the NIV says be dressed, ready for service. He's saying roll your sleeves up and jump in to kingdom service. Find a place to serve the Lord. It may be in the preschool. It may be discipling children on Wednesday nights, youth on Wednesday nights. It may be a a prayer coordinator in your Bible fellowship group or a care leader in your Bible fellowship group. Maybe you serve on the the mission team. Maybe you're a, a greeter at the door. You might not think, you might not think that what you're doing is very important, but how How important is it to give a cup of cold water or to wash smelly feet? Well, Jesus says those kinds of things were very important. Uh, we, We relegate things by what we think are important because the world puts stature on particular activities, but kingdom activities are all important. Do you think God shines greater grace on me because I preach than because you might serve in the preschool? You know, that's what Roman Catholicism teaches. Roman Catholicism teaches that there's this cataclysmic expanse between the clergy and the laity. Well, that's preposterous. Jesus takes our service no matter how monumental or insignificant the world says it is, he takes the world's opinion and he pushes it to the side. And he says to the Father, praise be to God for those who are serving in that preschool. Praise be to God for those who are going on that youth mission trip. Praise be to God for those who are are, uh, leading a BFG prayer group. We, We relegate things in a way that God doesn't relegate them. And so he says, put on the clothes of a servant, be dressed and ready to serve, find a place to serve and serve there. And then secondly, he says, keep your lamp lit or the way that I stated it, let the the light of your life shine. Let your light shine. Jesus said twice that he is the light of the world in chapter eight, verse 12 in 
The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 5 in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world, and as long as it is day, we must keep on working. And so Jesus is the light of the world, but he also said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world because the light of the world dwells in us. Jesus Christ dwells in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We live in a world shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness, and wherever we go, we're to bring light. We're to bring some illumination. By the choices we make, by the things that we say, by the way that we treat people. And so he says, let your light shine, shine in service to Jesus in the church and in the world. Let your light shine. You know, this, this, this disparity between church and, and work is another erroneous idea. On your job, your job is to make your supervisor successful. It's to make his or her life better. There's a whole industry that tries to tell you how to go over them, over them, around them, under them. That's not a Christian way to serve those over you. Everybody wants to be a Paul on the job. Nobody wants to be a Timothy. But if you're not in the place of supervision, you're a Timothy, not a Paul. And if you try to be a Paul when God's made you a Timothy, you will betray the trust that God has given you on your job. In our, in our structure, we are pastors led, deacons served, congregationally approved. Among our pastors, you've, you have called me to be the, the senior pastor, the lead pastor. And so at the end of the day, I have to make certain decisions at certain times. I try to give huge latitude to our ministerial staff, the other pastors. But they don't try to go over me, around me, or under me. I, I'll give you an example. Our executive pastor called me the other day. We talk almost every single day uh, because we've got things at the church that have to be talked about. He said, you know we've got the names of the people that we're going to ask to serve on this initial building team. I'm in consultation with Peter Holmes, the chairman of our deacons. I'm going to be speaking with Chip Yankee. I'm going to get all of the input that comes together. Uh, he says, I want you to know I want you to be as involved as you want to be. I want you to be un as uninvolved as you feel like you, you want to be. I will do what you want me to do. I will be as involved as you want me to be. I will be as uninvolved as you want me to be. I said, well, you're, the, you're essentially the CFO. I want you to be very involved, and I will be not very involved. I want to come to the very first meeting. I want to speak to the, I want to speak to the team from my heart about, about the, 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 the mission that we're launching onto, and then I want you to be the chief spokesperson for, for us, as we'll have other ex officio members of our staff that will be there as well to give input and insight and guidance along the way. All of that to come back to this. He didn't go under me, around me, or over me. 
He came to me. And that's what it means on your job as well. To be a light is to be a person of integrity on the job and let your light shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overpower it. And so he's talking about service, the right kind of service. Uh, but he moves to a, to a second thought. It's a, it's a shocking thought. It's, a, it's a, an unexpected turn of events in verses 37 and 38. It's a, a shocking reward for those who are ready when Jesus returns. He serves us. It's unbelievable. I've read this so many times. I, I teach the, the Gospel of Luke at the seminary. I teach it online. Every time I read this, it just, it just doesn't seem to set right with me. But it's what the Bible says. He will serve me. I feel kind of like Peter when Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And then Jesus said to him, if I don't wash your feet, then get out. So I don't think I'll say that to him. But, but notice what he says. He will prepare a table for us. He will seat us. He will serve us. It, it says in the New Testament that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. So here's the king of glory serving those whom he created on earth. Now we see the king of glory serving those whom he created in heaven. He's teaching us what does it mean to serve? You serve by serving people. You serve people. That's the way that you serve in the kingdom, by serving people. And so he, he says he will serve those who are ready for him when he returns in verse 37 and 38. Notice again verse 37, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will prepare himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he, singular, will come up and serve them. Regardless of whether he comes in the second watch or the third watch or whenever he comes, he is going to be a blessing to those who are appropriately waiting for him. So we serve Jesus by serving people in the church and in the world. Uh, but I want to give you a, a third thought. It's in verses 39 and 40. It's a, it's a helpful reminder. We don't know exactly when that day will be. And when it comes, there's going to be blessing like we've just seen, but there will also be judgment like he talks about here. He uses the illustration of a thief coming and breaking into a house in verse 39. He said, if the owner of the home knew when the thief would break in, he'd be sitting in his easy chair in front of the window, the thief is coming in with his gun in his hand if he knew when the thief was going to break in. But thieves don't come into our homes very often when we're expecting them. They don't send us a note. Now, they did this in New Orleans. When we lived in New Orleans, 
the, we had friends who lived in seminary housing off campus and they would put a note on the car of the, of the, of the, um, of the car that they intended to steal. The note would say, your car next week. You might as well open the doors and roll down the windows and give them what, and give them what's inside. They're getting it. They're getting into the car. They're breaking in next week. You can count on it. It happened every single time. Your car next week. That's how brash and bold they, uh, they were. Uh, but when he says he's going to come like a thief, he's going to come at a time that we're not expecting it, that we're not anticipating it. Now, we have all kinds of second coming experts running around. All kinds of people who know all of the ins and outs of millennialism and tribulationalism and, and, and the rapture. The problem is there's people smarter than you and me who are more godly than you and me who believe differently than we do. We need to hold some of the, that stuff a little bit loosely. What we hold very tightly is the same thing that they hold very tightly. Jesus is coming back. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. We don't know the time. But when he does come, it's going to be at an hour that we don't anticipate or expect it. And it's going to be a time of blessing and it's going to be a time of judgment. In fact, the, the kind of judgment that he describes is astonishing. The servant that is unprepared when his master returns is going to be cut in half. Now, he's speaking by analogy. He's, he, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking hyperbolically. He's wanting to communicate the idea that there is, coming, there is a day of judgment coming. And it's more horrible than anybody could ever imagine if you are one of those who will be judged. There's only two camps in this particular passage and in every passage. There are those who are saved and those who are lost. There are those who are redeemed and those who are condemned. There are those who are going to heaven and there are those who are going to hell. That's the only two categories of people in the Bible. There are Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. And when Jesus re returns, it will be a day of judgment to those who don't know him, but a day of blessing to those who do know him. But let me move to a fourth thought very quickly. The fourth thought is this. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. We've been given a lot. We have more translations of the Bible than at any time in human history. We have more Bible teaching than at any time in human history. We have more access to more Bible teaching than any time in human history. We have more opportunities to take the gospel across the street or literally around the world than at any time in, in human history. We have all kinds of opportunities, and we need to avail ourselves of as many as possible. To whom much is given, much is required. And we've been given a lot. 
considering the fact that we've got people living in different parts of the world who know very, very little of the Bible. They've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They have, they have no Bible teacher. They have no church gathering. Uh, they're essentially on their own, or it's just a small cadre of believers. And God expects more of you and me than he does of them. They've got the Holy Spirit and they've got the Word of God, but they don't have as many brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't have as many avenues and opportunities for, for worship and service and all of the means of grace that we've got. God expects a lot of us because He has given a lot to us. And in verses 41 through 48, that's exactly the point that He's making. To whom much is given, much is expected. He holds us to a very high standard. That's why he says in James chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers because you're held to a higher standard. My, my words and my actions are judged by greater scrutiny than the words and the actions of others because of the, of the position that God has blessed me with. But all of us have been blessed, and we're all held to a high degree of responsibility, accountability. That is, we should be servants as long as we're able to serve, as long as we're physically able to serve, as long as we're spiritually able to serve. There ought to be some place where we're serving. And again, you might think it's inconsequential being a community group leader in your BFG, being a role taker in your BFG, maybe, uh, maybe serving in the, in the preschool once or twice a month. That's looking at it completely the wrong way. We've got, to, we've got to look at things from a divine perspective. God turns things topsy-turvy. And what we think might be insignificant, like a cup of cold water, he says it's like giving me a cool cup of water. Or washing, washing feet by changing diapers. Well, that's, that's like a ministry to Jesus. Let me give you some final thoughts, four final thoughts on being ready for Jesus' coming. So we step back, we look at the entire passage, here's the first thought, Jesus is coming back, you can count on it. Jesus is coming back, you can count on it. The Bible teaches it. You and I may quibble on some of the details, we may disagree on some of the particulars, but I think you and I can actually firmly Embrace the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back. But we're waiting for him. And he's told us how he wants us to wait. That's the second thought. While waiting for Jesus' return, put on your work clothes. Serve Jesus by serving his people. Look for opportunities that you can do good. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Your physical health may not allow you to serve in the preschool. Your physical health may not allow you to do a lot of things you used to do. Nobody in this church may watch as you sit in your chair, in your living room, with your television off, and you're going through the names of people in this congregation praying for them. You know, the greatest people in the kingdom of God may be people we never know their name. 
It may be uh, an elderly lady living in a slum in Beirut who's put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. She's crippled. And all she can do is approach God in prayer for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, she'll be greeted with wide open arms when she enters kingdom glory. You know that to be true, and I know that to be true. So roll your work sleeves up. Put on your work clothes. Find a place of service. The great thing is I'm not telling you anything that almost all of you aren't doing. Whenever we occasionally go through the, go through the list of members as a, as a church staff, and we look to see where people are and, and, how and, and, and talk about how they're doing, it is unbelievable how many of you serve. And, 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 and how many of you want to serve but just are no longer able to serve in the way that you previously served because of age or health or debilitating uh, situations or circumstances? You blow the roof off every, every study that I've ever read. I've, I've, never, I've never seen a study that has a higher percentage of people serving as we have in a congregation of our size. So I'm not telling you anything that you're, that you're not doing. Uh, just be reminded you're, you're doing it while you're waiting. You're doing it as preparing for a day when you're going to sit at a table and Jesus is going to serve you. Third, while waiting for Jesus' return, turn up the light. We have the brightest light bulbs in the city of Louisville. That is, Jalen buys very bright lights. Some of them are on, uh, on, on dimmer switches. Uh, she likes me to be able to see. We've got lights that when I step onto the first step of our stairs going up, stair lights come on, three of them. It's not like it's an airport or anything, but there are three strategically <laughs> located. And when I get ready to come downstairs at about five o'clock in most mornings, I, st I take a step and there they, it begins to light up and, and they light up and I'm able to, I'm able to see my steps. You, you go into my, uh, into, my, into my study. If I turn on all, my, on all my lights, it's like a prison break. All of the lights on the prisoner as he's trying to make his way toward the, uh, toward the fence. Uh, very, very bright. Well, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to be bright lights. And lights are very helpful when we gather together or, or, and illuminate uh, and warm one another but they're also helpful in the darkness. And most of us have places in our world where we go into the darkness. Some of you are going to have family reunions this summer. And, it, and it's, it's painful even to think about. You come from very rough family. And... If you're like me, for the first number of years, I wanted my non-Christian family to act like they were a Christian family. So when we gathered together, it was always quite frustrating to me because I couldn't understand why my non-Christian family couldn't live like a Christian family. But then I woke up one day with the gracious help of my wife. You know, they're not a Christian family. They don't know Jesus. Jesus. 
you just frustrate yourself when you want them to act like they know Jesus when they don't know Jesus. And so you take the light of the gospel maybe into a family setting that's not very easy. And listen, I had a tough family. You, I had a very tough family. I was much better off and I had much greater influence when I began to realize don't expect my non-Christian family to act like a Christian family. Just be a light and love them and be forbearing with them. It might mean a couple conversations with your children before you go. We were at a dinner one time, and I think, I think maybe Lydia might have been 12, and, and one, of, uh, one of our family members used a profanity, and she said, we don't talk like that in our family. She could say, get away with it, and it'd be fine. If I had said it, it would have caused quite an uproar. And the point of the matter is, that family reunion's not going to damage your children, but you may damage the souls of the people that you should be a light to by expecting them to be somebody they cannot be because they're shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness. They're spiritually dead. They've never experienced the new birth. So let your light shine, whether it's on the job, at the soccer field, or even at a family reunion. Finally, do you have a seat at the table? Have you made a reservation in the kingdom of God? Is there a place with your name sitting at the table? Not if you don't know Jesus Christ. Well, you might think, well, you know, I, I know I don't know Jesus, but I'm going to put my faith in Jesus one day. How do you know that? Because you don't make that determination. The Spirit of God works in people at particular junctures. We harden our hearts every time we say no. We become harder and harder and harder, and we become less concerned and less concerned and less concerned, and we become more indifferent and more indifferent and more indifferent. And what you say today may very well not be true in six months, nine months, or five years. I tell you, get your seat at the table today. If you don't know Jesus, put your faith and trust in him today. Recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's you. And it was most of us. Well, actually, it was all of us at one time. That the wages of sin is death. Uh, death is, a, death is an, an, an animal that's pulling us ever closer toward hell if we don't know Jesus. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you receive it? You receive it as a gift. For as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, to receive him is to believe in his name. To believe in his name is to receive him. Become children of God. I would encourage you, do that today. Speak to someone about it today. Don't wait until your heart becomes a little bit harder tomorrow when today could be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to sing this final song together, we're reminded of the wonderful fact that Jesus is coming again.
And for most of us in this room this morning, that's good news, great news, glorious news. There's a lot of the details we're confused about. There's a lot of things uh, that we don't understand completely, but we do understand this. You are coming again. So, Father, help us to roll up our sleeves. Help us to get to work. Help the light to burn ever more brightly. And Father, for those who don't have a seat yet at that table, I pray in Jesus' name that today would be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.